I've come down to the London School of Economics just on the road from the BMJ to talk to Hussein Naji, Assistant Professor of Health Policy here at the LSE and one of the authors of a new paper just published on bmj.com looking at um, the evidence of benefits and survival in cancer drugs approved by the European Medicine Agency. Hussein, thank you very much for taking some time to talk to me. My pleasure. The standout figure from from what you've published um, for me was that two-thirds of the drugs that made it through regulatory approval um, didn't do so on the basis of life expectancy or quality of life increases. Um, you've been looking at this for a long time. Did that did that figure surprise you? Indeed, this was a very surprising finding that the majority, the vast majority of cancer medicines that are entering the European market um, between the period 2009 to 2013 and a follow-up period of five years, uh, we don't find um, for approximately two-thirds of medicines are entering the market, cancer medicines are entering the market without any evidence of survival benefits. And when we follow these drugs up for about five years, um, very few of them actually do demonstrate an overall survival benefit in the post-approval period because the assumption or the expectation um, at the regulatory agency level in Europe is that if the drug doesn't demonstrate an overall survival benefit once when it is being approved to go onto the market mm -hmm. is that it will do so at a later stage once it's already on the market, once we're evaluating it in larger studies. But what we find is that very few studies are conducted to actually evaluate overall survival at this later stage. And very few drugs are actually demonstrating an overall survival benefit or a quality of life benefit uh, once the products are already on the market. Mm -hmm. So indeed, a very surprising finding. Mm -hmm. And there's a couple of things I want to pick up on there. Um, first of all, on what basis um, is the EMA, EMA approving these new drugs um, if it isn't on life expectancy and on quality of life? Um, I think it's very important to really emphasize this point that um, we are looking at overall survival and uh, quality of life because we think these are the ultimate objectives of cancer treatment. Mm -hmm. This is uh, what patients and their doctors and caregivers and family members really care about. And that's what people expect when they go on to these new drugs, that it is going to uh, improve their life, it's going to, Absolutely. to make them live longer. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and what we find is that the majority of the studies that are used to support the European Medicines Agency approvals of these cancer medicines do not even um, include overall survival or quality of life as their primary endpoints. Mm -hmm. So overall survival and quality of life may be secondary or tertiary objectives of these studies, which in itself is a very interesting finding, actually. And um, what is also very interesting is that instead of these really important outcomes of survival and quality of life, the types of endpoints that the clinical studies are evaluating are the so-called surrogate mm -hmm. measures. And these are things like laboratory measures and x-rays and biomarkers that we think will be um, predictors of the types of outcomes that patients care about. And the types, of the types of outcomes that patients care about are things like heart attacks and strokes and hospitalizations or living longer, symptom relief, mm -hmm. these types of outcomes. Mm -hmm. The expectation is that we can do it easier by collecting information on these surrogate measures because we think that these are um, intermediates 
of these clinically meaningful outcomes. But the difficulty of this is that there are some areas where surrogates are quite good, validated, and established, mm -hmm. such as in cardiovascular disease. Yep. Um, so this may be, for instance, uh, blood pressure or LDL cholesterol, which are established surrogate measures of things like heart attacks and strokes and deaths. Mm -hmm. But in areas like oncology, it's a lot more complicated, where surrogate measures may not be strong and reliable predictors of things like overall survival. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what we find is that the majority of studies uh, in our sample supporting cancer drug approvals are using um, the surrogate measure of progression-free survival, or PFS. And this is despite the fact that PFS, or progression-free survival, is not always a reliable predictor of overall survival. And in fact, there have been really controversial cases in the past, in, in recent years, where drugs, cancer drugs that were approved on the basis of progression-free survival turned out to not demonstrate any overall survival benefits once they were already on the market. Mm. And one example of this is Bevacizumab, or Avastin, which is a drug that was approved for advanced metastatic breast cancer. When this drug was approved, it was um, on the basis of progression-free survival. The findings were very impressive and favorable for the, for the drug. And once it was already on the market, it was evaluated in large studies, and none of these studies found any evidence that the drug extended life, which was the expectation that it would. And in fact, the drug was found to be quite toxic as well. So you have a scenario here whereby patients are receiving a drug with the expectation that it would improve and extend their life, but they find out several years later, when the drug is already on the market and it's been used for several years, that it doesn't do any of those things. So what ended up happening in this case was that the US regulatory agency, the FDA, withdrew its approval for this indication, for this particular use of bevacizumab, and the use of this drug was also um, restricted within the European Union by the European Medicines Agency. But the unfortunate thing is that this is not a rare example, and there are several examples where cancer drugs are entering the market on the basis of these surrogate measures, uh, such as progression-free survival. And we have no um, guarantees that these drugs will turn out to then extend life mm -hmm. later on. And interestingly, in that case, it came back around, and it's now used for what? Bowel cancer? Ovarian cancer. Various other things as right. well, yeah. As a consumer, in this sort of system, um, one kind of assumes that the EMA is looking out for the things that, that patients want. Um, and, you know, as we've discussed, that, that quality of life and life expectancy improvement. Um, but they don't even ask for that. Um, that's not a requirement uh, for regulatory approval at all. Um, I think one thing that's really important to highlight is that overall, um, the quality of the studies that are being submitted to the European Medicines Agency seems to be of high quality, actually. Mm -hmm. The majority of these studies are randomized controlled trials, which we know are the most trustworthy and valid types of studies that we can do to understand if drugs actually work. So the majority are of high standard, and the EMA is doing a good job of requiring these types of studies. Um, where we find quite a lot of variation or flexibility in the evidence standards of the European Medicines Agency is the endpoints. As you suggest, 
at the moment there is no clear requirement or indication um, coming from the European Medicines Agency stating that overall survival is the ultimate objective of cancer trials. This is despite the fact that EMA itself has referred to overall survival as the most persuasive endpoint in cancer trials, but it, uh, at the moment it doesn't require this to be an endpoint or a primary endpoint in cancer trials. And what is even more striking is uh, the issue of quality of life, because uh, many of the cancers, cancer drugs that we're looking at in this paper are for really advanced metastatic stages of the disease, mm -hmm. and you would expect that quality of life is a primary objective in these palliative uh, types of settings. And um, many of the studies don't even include quality of life as an objective. In none of the studies that we identified, quality of life is a primary endpoint, which is really, really striking to us. Mm -hmm. And um, there is a clear need for recommendations and guidance as to how best to collect this information in a routine fashion moving forward for cancer trials. Um, and when, it, when you're talking about lack of things like extended life expectancy or improved quality of life, then the downsides of medication, the harms that are associated with side effects or, or whatever, um, you know, the, the balance tips there. Um, RCTs are a great way of studying efficacy, but they're not very good at picking up harms data. What kind of things do the EMA require when it comes to that? And, and did any of that um, come through in your, in your study? Um, so we have not looked at um, toxicity as an endpoint in our study or any safety uh, events or, or side effects um, of, of these medicines. Uh, we focused exclusively on overall survival and quality of life benefits because we thought that these were the most important ones. Um, as far as the types of studies that the European Medicines Agency can require from uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers of cancer drugs, um, there are uh, observational studies and surveillance studies that can be required and followed up on, but um, again, we didn't really look into whether or not these are actually followed up on and um, completed in a timely fashion to demonstrate these types of things. Um, but what you did look at was five years down the line from approval to see if life expectancy and quality of life had improved with these drugs. Um, did that happen for all drugs? How, how good was that evidence being created you know, post-marketing approval? So to give you the, um, the, the actual statistics which we report in the paper, um, about, as we, as we already talked about, two-thirds of the cancer approvals were not associated with any overall survival benefits when they were approved onto the market. When we followed these up for about five years, only an additional three cancer drugs were associated with overall survival benefits in the post-marketing period. And of those, only five um, drugs were associated with quality of life improvements. And another finding that was really striking is that it's not only that very few cancer drugs are associated with overall survival benefits, but when we look at the how, how meaningful these overall survival benefits are, um, the overall survival benefits uh, that we observed range from one month to 5.8 months. Mm. And uh, this translates to about a median of um, two point, um, I will check that, 2.7 months. And 
this may be considered small for some people it may it may mean the whole world for others so what we wanted to do just to be as objective as possible is that uh, we applied a, a validated scale to understand whether these benefits were actually clinically meaningful. Mm -hmm. So we used a scale developed by the European Society of Clinical Oncology, or ESMO, um, which can only be applied to, solid, uh, to, to cancer drugs aimed at solid tumors. And what we found was that only half of the drugs that demonstrated any overall survival benefits met the threshold of a clinically meaningful overall survival benefit. Mm -hmm. So in some cases, just because there's a statistical evidence of overall survival benefit doesn't really mean that this is a meaningful and worthwhile overall survival benefit. Mm. Mm. And if we can move on to be a bit more philosophical about this, it seems like, I mean, to me anyway, the whole basis of how a regulatory system works um, if it doesn't require, you know, these these solid life expectancy, overall life expectancy, quality of life improvement things, is that we presume that drugs are better, that new drugs are better. And I think the industry has been very good at at framing all new cancer drugs in that way, um, and yet we're, we're we're now sort of playing catch up and and realizing that that's not the case. I mean, one thing that's quite clear is that uh, over the past few decades, there seems to be a lot of change in the rhetoric about pharmaceutical regulation in that um, uh, we, we now see really research papers looking at how fast regulatory agencies are approving drugs as a metric of their success. Mm -hmm. um, so it, 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 the, the dynamic changed from um, how well we're doing in terms of really investigating and delving into these drugs applications and making sure that they're the best that can be out there before patients are taking them and really ensuring that the drugs are safe and effective. The metric of success now seems to be how fast we're approving these drugs. So now there are these papers looking at uh, how the FDA is compared to the EMA versus the Japanese counterpart in terms of approving drugs fastest um, uh, onto the marketplace. So the rhetoric definitely seems to be changing. And um, uh, it's really important that um, we instill a bit of a reality around the true value of these medications in terms of their clinical value as well as their economic value and the opportunity costs of paying for medications before truly knowing how valuable they are uh, in terms of their therapeutic benefits. Um, and the, the less data we collect on these medicines at the time that they're approved, the less we know about their true benefits, which means that um, we have a lot of uncertainty around how much we should be paying for these medications. Mm -hmm. Because the more we pay for new medications, the less we have available for other medications, which may actually be more effective and more valuable for larger numbers of people. So there are these really difficult dynamics that we find ourselves in. And regulatory agencies like the EMA and FDA the health technology assessment agencies like the, the NICE in the UK and many others in other European countries are on a daily basis faced with these difficult um, decisions and, and trade-offs. Mm. And I think that trade-off, especially between, say, NICE and, and the EMA, is interesting where the regulator has approved this drug, marketing approval at least, and then the pressure on NICE to actually pay for that drug is incredibly strong. Um, and when they want to ask things about the, you know, the quality of life outcomes um, associated with them, that data just isn't available to, to make that kind of assessment. Um, 
Yes, the researchers from um, Harvard Medical School, among others, have previously shown that uh, when you ask the um, the general kind of clinician community about what they understand about um, FDA approval of drugs, for instance, in the United States. Uh, what we see is that there is great misunderstanding about what it means for a drug to be approved by a regulatory agency. Mm -hmm. We tend to think of it as an endorsement, that the drug is safe and effective and that's it. Uh, but in reality, what it means is a lot more complicated and a lot more complex in that we may have very limited data at the time of approval and we may expect more data to, to be generated once the drug is already on the market. So these types of um, intricacies of what regulatory approval actually means, I think we need to do a better job of really communicating this to the wider public and wider society so that the pressure on health technology assessment agencies such as NICE um, is a bit more manageable. Because at the moment, what seems to be happening is that just because a drug is approved by the European Medicines Agency is assumed to mean that the drug is safe and effective. And the types of questions that NICE tends to ask, which are very important questions about the cost effectiveness of this medication, the therapeutic value of this medication in the UK context, um, are equally important, if not more important in many cases. Um, and so we need to really uh, get into, uh, do a better job of communicating these uh, types of intricacies and what it means for a drug to be approved. And hopefully our paper contributes to that debate a little bit. Mm -hmm. The problem of not linking money and what we pay for to outcomes is pervasive through all our, our kind of healthcare system. Um, and we know that, you know, things like the STPs in, in the UK now um, are trying to become sort of like accountable care organisations where outcomes, you know, the things that matter to patients are, are very much linked to money. Um, and yet the huge, a huge part of our spend, um, pharmaceuticals, as we've been discussing, aren't linked in that way. Um, is there anything going on to try and change that, to, to try and, you know, square that circle? So we're increasingly seeing um, managed entry agreements uh, in the context of NICE, uh, whereby uh, pharmaceutical agents that are deemed to be not as cost-effective according to NICE's expectations or thresholds uh, may still be recommended for use in the NHS um, if they demonstrate some sort of outcomes down the line. Um, but what we're seeing is the complexity of actually implementing these types of programs because we need to have a very clear understanding of what outcomes we want the drugs to improve, uh, in what time frame, how do we measure these outcomes, and how do we collect the data for these outcomes. And, and, and many of these questions may not have very easy answers, and it may actually cost the healthcare system quite a lot uh, to institute the types of mechanisms that we need uh, to make sure that we can reliably collect this information in a timely manner. Mm. Um, the previous managed entry or so-called risk-sharing arrangements of the sort have been quite uh, challenging. And one example is the multiple sclerosis risk-sharing scheme from the early 2000s, um, where NICE agreed to pay and, and cover um, and uh, fund um, the, the multiple sclerosis agents on the basis that they improve outcomes on a continual basis for the patients. And the data collection mechanisms at the time were not ripe 
and um, suitable for this uh, type of data mm -hmm. collection. So there are all sorts of issues and complexities that we need to think about. It's not a very um, easy solution actually to, to try to think about linking the price or the value to the, um, the, the, the achieved outcome of these agents. Interesting. And sort of linked to that, it feels like, and, and going back to our, our talk earlier about the sort of the way in which these new drugs are framed as always being better, um, you know, the rhetoric around making approval easy for, for companies is to instill, you know, more innovation, to, to get new drugs and, and to make sure that, you know, that pipeline is working. And do you think there's any validity in that? And, and is that something that we need to, to bear in mind if we are trying to then, you know, make sure that, that quality of life and life expectancy are the things that we actually care about? Right. I think there is absolutely the need to think about exceptional circumstances where patients are in need to have faster access to medications. Um, and, and these may be very advanced stage cancers or other types of conditions where there is clear unmet need. And I think what the regulatory agencies have done over the last decades or so um, is warranted in coming up with pathways and programs to try to accommodate the needs of these types of patients and these types of conditions. I think where things may have gone a little bit um, out of the, um, the trajectory that was initially planned uh, is when these accelerated approval or expedited approval programs that were meant to be exceptional uh, now became the norm. Mm. Um, and there is increasing research out there showing that a larger and larger proportions of new drugs that are coming onto the marketplace, both in the United States and in the European Union, are associated with expedited approval mechanisms. And what this means is that the data we have available on these medications is simply not sufficient to inform the decisions that we need to uh, make uh, in healthcare systems, including those decisions need to be made by NICE and those decisions that need to be made between patients and their doctors. So the, the trajectory seems to be changing quite a bit and the dynamic seems to be changing quite a bit. And I think we need to be very clear about the instances and circumstances where it's warranted for new medicines can be approved on the basis of these expedited approval programs. At the moment, this distinction doesn't seem to be as clear-cut uh, in its actual implementation. You've been listening to Hussein Naji discuss the article Availability of Evidence of Benefits on Overall Survival and Quality of Life of Cancer Drugs approved by the European Medicines Agency, a retrospective cohort study of drug approvals, 2009-13. That article is now available on bmj.com, along with a feature by Deborah Cohen and an accompanying editorial by Vinay Prasad. Both of those look more widely at drug approval. And we'll actually be back with an interview with Vinay very soon, so subscribe to make sure you don't miss out. We're available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Once you're there, you'll also find over 200 episodes from our back catalogue all available for free. If that's not enough, then check out bmj.com forward slash podcasts, where you will find years worth of content. Again, all for free. Thanks for listening.